Good morning. Good to uh, be here for our last uh, talk at Heartland Institute. As I mentioned uh, this weekend, it was 19 years ago that I spoke here, and it might be another 19 years until the next time. Uh, but I think with the way time is going on, uh, unlikely uh, to, uh, uh, to be back here in 19 years uh, speaking, but only God knows. So uh, today we're going to uh, uh, end our, our presentation in regards to this important topic uh, of sex, brain chemistry, and mental health. Now, as I was also told there was going to be a whiteboard here, and uh, sorry I wasn't able to be here much ahead of time because uh, we had a Zoom Weimar board meeting right before this, but, um, oh, there's a whiteboard over there, good. Yeah, maybe we can bring it up here on stage um, so that I can demonstrate uh, some things uh, regarding uh, this topic uh, in general and what happens in regards to the uh, brain uh, chemistry aspect of things. So, uh, as, you, um, uh, as I, I talked about, we have a master's program in marriage and family therapy at Weimar. Thank you very much. Uh, also for licensed counseling. And uh, some of what we teach is going to be also taught in a standard um, a university in regards to the stages of marriage. Um, so I'm just going to uh, write them down up here. What do we call the first stage of marriage? The honeymoon stage. Uh, yes, a honeymoon stage would be a good term for it. What's, what's used in the uh, in the marriage and family therapy textbooks is called the stage of euphoria, or they might call it the euphoric stage. How long does that stage last? <laughs> All right. Uh, someone up front says it lasts a couple of days. <laughs> Uh, anyone want to know what the, I hear someone's going to give us an answer? Oh, they're wanting something darker. Uh, yeah, I don't know if we have black so that you can see this here. Uh, what's the average length of this euphoric stage? It could be as low as a couple of days. Uh, it is possible that it can be that way. Uh, a year, uh, someone says. The average length, maybe we'll, uh, the average length is 18 months. And you know what the range is for the uh, 90, th this would be 97.5% of Americans would be in a range of six months to a maximum of four years. So the 97.5%, 1.5% of the remaining 2.5% or 1.25% would be less than six months. And then there's another 1% or so 
where this stage will actually last through the entire duration of the marriage. So you're going to find out if you're, uh, uh, how to be able to maintain that if you're a uh, young uh, individual. And if you've lost it, if you've progressed along these stages of marriage, uh, you'll also find out uh, how you might be able to get back there. So number, uh, number two, the second stage after, let's say, an average of 18 months, what do we call that stage of marriage? Someone says reality? <laughs> All right, thank you. The second stage of marriage, oh yeah, this is much better, is called the non-euphoria stage. <laughs> and some of you said that's the, the stage of uh, reality. This is where, uh, you know, a lot of people, of course, anticipate that this is going to happen uh, because you, um, you know, uh, those of you that have been at weddings, a lot of those older adults are smiling as they're m very madly in love, recognizing that there's a lot that's going to transpire in regards to the years of that marriage. And at the 18-month point, um, it's not like there's, the love is gone. It's just that the love is still there, but it's not hot and heavy. In other words, you might look across the room at your mate and no romantic feelings actually even come up. And you, um, you know, and there's other times when the romantic feelings are there, but overall it's not like it was during the dating stage or the first um, 18 months of marriage where it was like you just can't get this person off of your mind. Everything uh, in, your, in what you do is related to this other romantic partner. And so the non-euphoric stage has variable lengths as well. Let me put, just put this down so you, you can all read it. And average is 18 months here. There's even more variableness to the non-euphoria stage, depending on some other things that are happening in this marriage that we're going to center in on um, here today. But eventually, in a typical marriage, there's a stage three. What is the stage three? This is the despicable stage. This is when actually you look across the room at your partner and feelings of hatred can actually well up. And there are certain things about your partner that just really irritate you now that you never noticed before. Uh, and it's, it's like, you know, it just really bothers me how he does this or how she does this and she won't change. I've even talked to them about it. And this is just the way they are and it's so irritating to me. Yes, question. Can you just tell us like how many, how long these stages last? <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, she wants to know uh, uh, average length of stage. So the average length of stage, uh, the first one we mentioned is 18 months. Uh, the average is not so well defined for the non-euphoria stage, but in a lot of cases, it's going to be somewhere around the two to four year point. And it can start progressing rather rapidly, and it's going to be very dependent upon the things I'm going to be teaching you in regards to the sex and mental health as to how rapidly this goes. But the despicable stage is when what happens in a lot of marriages? Divorce occurs. And there's also some memory loss that tends to occur in this stage. All of a sudden, the partners don't remember actually taking a vow until death do us part. The vow that they remember taking is, until love shall last. And, but that's not the vow that they took. <laughs> but there are some that do remember. You know what? I did say, until death do us part. And this is really despicable, what is happening and how I feel about it and all of the tensions and the different areas of discord. And so I'm going to go to marital counseling. And that's when they end up seeing a marriage and family therapist. And the marriage and family therapist, the expert that has been trained and gotten their master's degree and license and passed all the board exams, those experts are really trying to take you, because by the time you're there, you're in the despicable stage in most cases. They're trying to take you from the despicable stage to stage four. And stage four is called the stage of toleration. And this is where the marriage and family therapist say, says, you know, are there things that you actually like about your mate? We've heard about the problems. <laughs> well, yeah, there are. And so they'll go through the things that they like and the things that they're happy about and, and how this uh, relationship has actually provided those types of things. And, uh, and then they'll say, okay, these things are really irritating, these things you like, how can we actually get the benefits while we minimize some of these others? And of course, they'll assign you a book called Boundaries in Marriage. <laughs> uh, boundaries in marriage in regards to being able to have each other tolerate uh, one another while they continue this union uh, so that they can raise their kids to adulthood and so they can uh, not have the, the split homes and those sorts of things. And you'll hear about this if you ever are fortunate enough to go to a 50th wedding anniversary. How many of you have ever been to a 50th wedding anniversary? <laughs> have you heard some of the statements that are made? I don't think I've been to one where I didn't hear this, where they say, these people are absolutely amazing. He put up with her for all of those years, and she put up with him for all of those years. Like a superhuman feat to be putting up with each other all of these years. And uh, it is a, a wonderful thing that they've lasted that long for 50 years. But is this God's ideal for marriage? 
No, it's not God, God's ideal for marriage. Now, what's happening in this euphoria stage? Let me, let me go a little bit to the, the uh, science here that's on the screen. What's happening during this stage is phenylethylamine. It's a chemical that speeds up the flow of information between nerve cells. Professor Robert Fryer explains falling in love involves phenylethylamine, which causes a person to be less likely to be aware of the faults of the other person. PEA gives us that euphoric high, that feel good, everything is wonderful. This person can do no wrong. We've oftentimes seen people who fall in love with somebody and ask, are you blind? Well, yes, they really are blind. And almost no one can tell them at that stage of the game because phenylethylamine is pouring out in large quantities. This neurochemical tends to be so powerful that it overrides the frontal lobe of of human beings. This is something that even Ellen White encountered because people would come to her who were wanting to unite their lives in marriage. Maybe the parents weren't for it. Maybe there were issues. And she would counsel them. And even the prophet of the Lord was not able to change their mind. And they would still end up uniting together in a marriage that was not the best. They were not matched well for each other. And towards the end of her career, she says, I've quit wasting my time with this sort of counseling. Who wouldn't get a rush with these chemicals running around? This also explains why many people need to be in love. They're addicted to that rush of chemicals. So these are people that change from one relationship to another. After this uh, chemical high can last from a few months to around four years. Average, there again, 18 months. Pretty typical relationship lengths or about the time the passion starts to wear down after this high wears off. So there are a couple of reasons (coughs) why this cycle starts to go. And I mean, more than a couple, but we're going to center in, what's our topic today? We're going to center in on the sex part because with marriage should come, according to the word of God, (laughs) should come the intimate aspect of marriage uh, and the sexual aspect of marriage. And so what is going on in regards to our desire to pursue things is a chemical called dopamine. When dopamine levels go up, this is highly motivating, and it also is resulting in a pleasurable sensation. So up here would be the euphoria stage. And down here, as far as dopamine levels, would be the dysphoria stage. And there are five natural things that can raise those dopamine levels. Anyone want to guess what those five things are? Well, sex, yes. Sex can produce that dopamine spike. What else? Uh, Food, 
Yes, food can do this. And of course, it depends on the type of food. Uh, celery, not so much of a bump. Chocolate cake and ice cream tends to have that big blast of, of dopamine. We'll get to that uh, also in a little bit. What else can do it? Well, the, the five major things that they talk about, and yes, there are some other things that, that can do it, such as music, uh, but the five major things are going to be uh, food, sex, friendship, so relationships can do this, love, and novelty. Novelty is learning new things. One of the ways in which you can tell if someone's dopamine levels are working well is if they're here on time at convocation and they're taking notes. <laughs> because they are, they are enjoying the process of learning new things. They're actually getting a dopamine high in regards to uh, this type of activity. And we'll even see this in our depression and anxiety recovery program. Most people that come to our depression and anxiety recovery program, their dopamine set point is somewhere down in here. In other words, this is where they're at at neutral. Um, we'll talk about that as well. Uh, and so, um, uh, but, uh, and of course, they use false ways to try to get that dopamine uh, level up there. But learning new things is actually something that was in our lower brain that God put in there because he wanted us to be lifelong learners. And so these things in regards to our lower brain aspect of things, this was also to be balanced by our upper brain. Yesterday we talked about balancing the mind. That's very important in regards to self-control. And even though... Dopamine is what is motivating us to pursue sex. If we have a good frontal lobe, we can recognize, no, I shouldn't be doing this. No, I shouldn't be pursuing this. No, this isn't the right way. No, this isn't the right time. And we can actually select with our frontal lobe uh, those sorts of things. The same thing can come with food. Even though food produces this dopamine spike, we might be hungry, the lower brain might say, it's time for some dopamine here in regards to food, but our frontal lobe says, nope, I'm on the no supper plan, and I'm not going to eat. And when it's time to eat, the dopamine, the lower brain is just saying, you're hungry, and yes, you can think of certain things, but the upper brain is telling you, now it is time to eat, but I'm not going to eat this, but instead I'm going to eat that. This is the, the frontal lobe aspect of things. When you're going to eat, what you're going to eat, even who you're going to eat with, uh, all of those are, are, uh, are choices that our frontal lobe was supposed to be able to kick in in regards to this. So I'm going to go through something that I think all of us have experienced in this room. If you haven't experienced this in this room, you can let me know and we'll maybe try to find an example that you have experienced. But I'm going to go through in regards to what happens to, with dopamine when you first ate chocolate. Does the dopamine go up just a little bit or does it go up a lot? It spikes. 
This is the first time you've had chocolate, and it's up there at the euphoric level. How long does it stay there? Not long. <laughs> Just a few minutes, and it comes back down again. But when it comes back down, it actually doesn't go down to neutral. It goes down to a little bit less than neutral. But you remember this. And the next opportunity, you're going to eat it again. <laughs> and when it goes up, this time it doesn't go up quite as far as it did the first time. And when it comes back down, it actually goes a little bit less than neutral. Now let's put a thousand times, depending on how quickly you're doing these thousand times. You know, some people like this feeling so much that this doesn't stay down very long. They're going right back to it. <laughs> and as, as they do that more frequently, and it becomes more of a habit, pretty soon their dopamine set point is actually down here. And now when they're participating in this chocolate, they actually get up to neutral or a little bit above, and it shoots back down again and goes back down here. And so first we do these things to get high, but eventually we're doing them to feel numb and neutral. And so a lot of people in this stage say, I need my chocolate. You know, I understand, I just heard a health lecture that it's not good for me, but they don't know me because I actually need this. And they need it because they feel that they have, in order to feel calm and neutral, they have to have this around. Now, it's not just chocolate that does these things. Anything that produces this dopamine spike, this tremendous surge, is going to have that pattern. And there's something that actually spikes your dopamine level more than chocolate. And that is what? Sex. Sex is the most natural blast of dopamine available. Now, there are other things that can do this. There are addicted drugs that can do it. You know, meth and cocaine can put it up there, you know, ex extremely high as well. But we're talking about natural things. In regards to those five different natural things, there's one that actually is superior to chocolate in producing euphoric levels that are, you know, chocolate is here, this would be off the chart here. And then it would have that same tendency to spike down. Now, this, what happens in a typical marriage, is something that's quite natural. Because that boost is so high, and because it's so wonderful, and the couples love each other, and they're getting undressed together, and they're sleeping in the same bed, they have a tendency to go past the latent period in mammals in regards to dopamine. So what we have studied, this was first studied in mammals, but it's also true in human beings. After sex, in order for you 
to have that neutral standpoint again, it takes 96 hours. And if it starts happening more frequently than 96 hours, you're going to start seeing this trend. And particularly, where you get the, 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 the best relationship, in other words, you'll be able to maintain that euphoria where it doesn't continue to go down and down, and by the way, when it starts going down to here, say like this is, you know, you're in the non-euphoric stage, obviously, at this point. <laughs> but when you're in the non-euphoric stage, you actually have a desire to get it up there in the higher stage like you remember. And there is something that will get it up there. And it's called novelty combined with sex. This is what drives the pornographic pathway, and this is what drives the seeking of new sexual experiences. And of course, this is one of the major reasons as well why relationships end. And so studies show, even in mammals, in rats, when a rat has repeated sexual relations with the same female rat and has it too frequently, this will go down, the dopamine set point will go down to here, and they won't be able to get it up above neutral until they furnish a novel female rat. And the novel female rat will actually accelerate to orgasmic activity far more than the old female rat who was with um, that male rat before. And it also happens in regards to the female rat as well. If you look this up in the sex literature, it's called the Coolidge effect. And it's the automatic response to novel mates. Now the issue is when you get to the novel mates part and you're shooting up here again, your dopamine set point is even going to go lower. And so this is one of the reasons why Solomon, we talked about him yesterday, was so dysphoric. There wasn't anything bad going on in his life, he had a beautiful house, he had beautiful palaces, he had great employees, everyone thought he should be the happiest person on planet Earth, but instead he was the least happy person on planet Earth because his dopamine levels were down in the dysphoric stage. And he would do things to try to get it up there to neutral, but it would come down way below neutral. Now, there is one thing, interestingly, there is one thing, more than one thing, part of it is frequency. So um, you're going to get that dysphoric, you're going to start going towards dysphoria if you're having sexual relations more than what? 96 hours. And, um, and you know, this is a, a pattern that tends to continue. So if it happens once or twice prior to 96 hours, you're not necessarily doomed. But if it continues along that line, it's very predictable what's going to happen to these dopamine levels. But the, the most ideal is actually waiting seven days. They've actually done studies where people who are having sexual relations for once a week double their sexual relations, thinking these, of course, regular secular researchers thinking it will actually enhance the marriage, and it doesn't enhance the marriage. It actually decreases 
the marriage intimacy, the marriage satisfaction, as well as the happiness with your relationship partner. And so uh, the other interesting thing about this is that sex in non-committed relationships, if you're having sex in a non-committal relationship, no matter what type of sex it is, it actually deteriorates the relationship significantly. And it also depends on the type of sex. Once you're starting to get in this stage, particularly certain, both, both um, couples have a little harder time, particularly when they're doing it too frequently and those things climaxing in getting that dopamine surge. And so there's a tendency to go to not sex by design. There's a term that's used in the medical literature that actually is a basket term, an umbrella term for all sex that is not by design. Do you know what we call that? Sodomy. Exactly right. We think of sodomy as only being one type of sexual act, but sodomy actually encompasses, when you look at it, sodomy encompasses all of the sex that is not sex by design where you're climaxing in that way. And it can be easier to climax with sodomy, but sodomy type of sex always results in this dopamine pathway going way down. The only type of sex that does not cause that dopamine pathway to go down, in other words, you can shoot up here, you can come back to neutral, and you can shoot back up to here again, is if it's called PVI sex. This is something that was researched very heavily at University of California, San Diego. PVI sex, anyone want to guess what that's called or what it stands for? All right. All right. Very good. Sex by design is called penile vaginal intercourse. And so PVI actually is the type of sex in the context of a committed relationship that is not going to go down here. And the reason why has to do not only with the commitment, but the other brain chemicals involved. If you have, for instance, casual sex, you will not be releasing oxytocin. Oxytocin is a very important brain chemical that produces this bonding. And it helps the couples to be well bonded and actually come together. And so the intimate act is not just about reproduction. It is about bonding. And it's about drawing this couple even closer together. There's something else that will occur with only PVI sex, but not other types of sex. And it's called prolactin release. Prolactin is a brain hormone that prevents the dopamine set point from going down as a result of the act. And studies show you can only prevent it from going down if you are already 100% fully committed to each other and if you are doing PVI sex and if it's not more frequent 
than every four days. And so you can see, once you understand those principles, you can start to see what's happening in marital uh, relationships and why there's a tendency for this to get so far down. Now, in regards to, back to this dopamine, I want to just spend a little more time on this because there is a, a way, if you're down in this stage, which a lot of people are when they come to our program, and by the way, one of the ways in which you more rapidly go down to this stage is masturbation. In both females and males, masturbation is always harmful to the brain. You don't get oxytocin, you don't get prolactin, you do get a dopamine surge, but that dopamine surge latency period seems to last less. That, you know, that 96 hours normally is a lower libido stage. But with masturbation, you don't get into the lower libido stage. So there's a tendency to overdo it. And in today's world, we have more masturbation going on than ever before in human history. In part due to the fact that we have more readily available pornography than ever before in human history. And, and so it used to be, you know, when I was growing up, masturbation was, you were thought, if you were doing that, you were thought to have a serious psychological problem. I remember one time when I was playing baseball, I was in a secular environment playing baseball out in a field, and, and one kid had to go to, down behind the bushes and, and find the ball that went, and he wasn't coming out of there. And then another kid uh, went over there and says, you know, what's going on? And apparently, he started that act in the bushes, and then the other kid announces, psycho, psycho, oh man, gross, I can't believe this, and all this. And all of us are wondering, what in the world? And, you know, and never even heard of that <laughs> before. Uh, but now it's actually encouraged as something that somehow will help your mental health. And it, it, it does produce a dopamine spike. <laughs> But that's the only advantage it's going, and the after effects are a dopamine set point that is definitely going down. So when your dopamine set point is down here, let's see where it is, and you go on a nice walk, or you might listen to the concert that you heard yesterday. When your dopamine set point is down here, you're not getting really anything in regards to listening to that concert. It might grow up micromillimeters. But you're seeing someone else that's having such a grand time at this concert and, and gaining all of this positive brain chemistry, but you're not wanting to say anything bad about it, but it's like, that's doing nothing for me. You go out on a nice walk and see the fall colors here in Heartland, and it'll come up here, but it's not going to really do much. And so the usual activities of life do not produce any real satisfaction. Your dopamine set point throughout your day is way less than neutral the vast majority of the time. And the only way it gets up to neutral is by numbing yourself by false ways of producing dopamine surges. It might be a YouTube video, it might be a Hollywood movie where it gets to an R-rated scene, or something along that nature where it gets close, or it might be a heavy metal music with you know, pretty rebellious types of, of words uh, that go along with it, and you might be able to get it up there a little bit more. 
But in general, and people that are down here are thinking, I need my sex. I need my novelty. Because without it, I am just a total basket case, even though there's nothing really bad going on in my life. Now, of course, there are bad things that start happening where it starts climbing down even more. But if you're on a plan where you are not overdoing it and you're doing the PVI, or even if you're single and you don't ever participate in sexual activity, either case, when you go on a nice walk, the dopamine levels come up and it's more gradual it comes up to not quite to the euphoric stage necessarily, but after that walk is over with, that dopamine level stays up for a very long time, and it comes down, and then you actually go out for a sunset walk, it comes back up again, and it will last. And so people that are not in this cycle of addiction, their dopamine levels are above neutral the vast majority of the day. And so both people are getting their dopamine. <laughs> Everyone's getting their dopamine. The difference is how they're getting it and where their dopamine set point is. And their set point will actually only go down to neutral. And there can be bad things happen. When your dopamine level is up here and someone cuts you off in traffic or flips you off or whatever, it doesn't get you down. You feel sorry for that person because you realize they've got a dopamine problem. <laughs> but it doesn't get you down. Uh, and, uh, and so this is part of what the psychologists call the psychological good life. <laughs> so if we're not in this cycle of addiction, we can get to this psychological good life. Now, if you've been in the cycle of sexual addiction or masturbation or casual sex or those type of things it turns out it takes 90 days of complete abstinence. We call it no PMO for 90 days. No pornography, no masturbation, no orgasm. Even if you're in a marriage relationship and you've been having this cycle of addiction or doing non-PVI sex or having it too frequently, we have people go through the science and then they make a decision that we're actually in a marriage relationship going to go 90 days consecutive days without sex. It's called a 90-day sex fast. And this dopamine set point will gradually come up as long as you're not on any other addictive substances like opioids and whatever. But if you're not on any other addictive substances, that dopamine set point is going to start coming up to neutral. And your motivation for doing healthy things goes way off the chart. And now you're able to be far more productive in work you're able to be far more creative, you're getting a lot done, and you're enjoying everything that you're doing. God created these wonderful brains that are, that are inborn in them neuroplasticity. So even Solomon could change. Now, there are certain forms of sex where if you're doing this really super stimulatory stuff, it may take more than 90 days in some individuals. But a typical person, it's going to take 90 days. For some individuals that are repeatedly doing sodomy, it might take a year before you're able to go back. So it's a little bit different 
for every individual. And once you understand this cycle, you can start understanding the research a lot better. So let me get to, I know I have a few minutes left. I'm going to, um, by the way, this sexual, we are living in an age in America uh, called the promotion and the practice of sexual freedom. And, uh, and somehow we get this idea that sexual freedom, you know, I, I've noticed sometimes people that talk about sexual freedom, it's like with the fervor that the Protestants used to talk about the Protestant Reformation. They, they think this is what America needs, is, is all of this insight regarding sexual freedom. But they're not looking at the research. They're not looking at the data. They're only looking at emotional reasoning. And, you know, when it comes to sex and emotional reasoning, it kind of started back when I was a teenager, when that song came out, You Light Up My Life. Any of you have heard that? You, you light up my life. You give me strength to carry on. You light up my day. I used to like the song, too. And then it gets to the end after she says all those things about how this man lights up her life. And then at the very end, you kind of get an idea of what type of relationship this was. It can't be wrong when it feels so right. That's emotional reasoning. Because you, you light up my life. And this is what's driving sexual freedom, is emotional reasoning. Emotional reasoning is your feelings do not lie. And the problem is our feelings often lie. We have fallen natures. So we have to elevate our feelings to our frontal lobe in regards to what we should act on and what we shouldn't act on. But sexual freedom has increased cohabitation. 73% of couples now have sex before getting married. And they're actually living together, not just having sex, they're living together. Studies show they're more likely to get married to a person who is not the best match when this happens. They're the reason why they haven't gotten married, and that's because they realize this probably necessarily isn't the best, but you know, I want to experience the benefits of marriage, so let's just go ahead and get together. And they're much less likely to have a good match. Because as soon as you start cohabitating, what happens to your other opportunities that might have been better matches? <laughs> they go away considerably. Then if they do get married, lower marital satisfaction compared with those who didn't cohabitate. Their dedication and commitment and confidence levels are significantly less. And also less what? Less intimate satisfaction. More negative communication. And much higher divorce rates. So this is one of the reasons why God wants that complete commitment first before we go into this relationship, because we'll be able to set ourselves up in that 1% to have PEA the rest of your life. So what happens when you are doing it too frequently or too unhealthfully? There are three things that happen. Desensitization. Among other changes, dopamine and dopamine 2 receptors decline in the brain's reward circuitry, leaving the addict less sensitive to pleasure and hungry for dopamine-raising activities and substances of all kinds. That means more pleasure leads to what? Less pleasure, and the addict then tends to neglect interest, stimuli, and behaviors that were once of high personal relevance. So they had tremendous motivation for good things, but as a result of the overdoing it in this area, 
not only their dopamine levels go down, but their receptors go down. And they start looking for ways to spike the dopamine. Then also sensitization occurs in the lowest part of the limbic system, the lower brain called the amygdala. Rewired nerve connections cause the reward circuitry to buzz in response to addiction-related cues or thoughts. The Pavlovian memory makes the addiction more compelling than other activities in the addict's life. And when this occurs, the individual is also more sensitive and more what? Irritable Irritable with what? The usual nuisances of life. And they start to think about sex in ways they never used to think about it. In other words, something might happen that's tangentially related to sex, where they would never thought of sex, but sex comes into their mind. And they'll start talking about it. If you're working with people in the secular environment, or sometimes even the religious environment, these people that are talking about sex are reminded about sex by things that aren't even necessarily related to sex, you know that they are in this second stage called sensitization. And what happens to anxiety? It goes up. Then, even worse, hypofrontality occurs. Willpower erodes. Alterations in frontal lobe gray matter and white matter correlate with reduced impulse control, weakened ability to foresee consequences, dysfunctional stress circuits. Limbic system easily overrides the frontal lobe, meaning that you are controlled simply by your emotions and you don't have the ability to manage your emotions. And in this state, the individual is prone to relapse into a previous addiction in response to stress. As bad as those things are, they can start to improve significantly in 90 days with abstinence and not having any other dopamine surges. So this is part of what I mentioned, the 96 hours. After four days, a mammal's able to copulate again, but it will take him how many days to return to maximum studliness? 15 days. By the way, testosterone is also affected. The more you are having sex, the lower the male's testosterone, testosterone levels go. And this is a big thing. People are wanting to get their testosterone levels up. It's low. And the doctors are doing a racket because they're injecting you with testosterone and all those things. But they're not telling you if you would just quit having sex, your testosterone levels would come up. It takes seven days for the testosterone level to come up and spike again after sexual intercourse. And so if you're doing it more than seven days, you're going to blunt that testosterone effect. And testosterone is good. It helps us with motivation. It helps us with creativity. It helps us with a number of things. Here's what the researchers are noticing on sex. This is their conclusion. The long-lasting sexual inhibition resulting from copulation, which is sexual relations to satiation, constitutes a protective mechanism against overstimulation of the brain circuits involved in its processing. In other words, they say this is a good thing that your libido's down. Because if it wasn't, you would actually be doing it more frequently and causing more adverse brain changes. So once again, during the decreased libido stage, only one way a rat will have sex again, furnish a novel female, and then other changes start taking place. Not only does their testosterone go down, their androgen receptors go down, their estrogen receptors come up and increase in opioids that dampen libido, and so they actually become more feminine. We're told that Solomon, with his sexual excess, became quite feminine. His estrogen receptors were up, 
considerably, androgen receptors was down, and the feminization of Solomon took over. So once again, consistent spike of testosterone around day seven, prolactin release four times higher after intercourse, having sex with a loving spouse increases oxytocin, but masturbation delivers a weaker year done response. German researchers report this duration of partnership increases in a, in a partnership, uh, a uh, romantic or sexual partnership. Sexual desire generally declines in women, while desire for tenderness generally declines in men. This does not have to take place, however. If you are not overdoing it and doing it in the wrong way, this will not happen. But you'll easily see it in a typical marriage. I was did my practice in Oklahoma for 26 years, just north of the Texas border. What's the most common vehicle driven in those states? It's a pickup truck. And during those first 18 months, you would drive down the highway and you'd think there's only one person in that pickup truck until you got really close and you'd see those two people are so close to each other, it looked like just one head from behind, but they just can't get enough of each other. There's a bench seat, and they are together. Give that relationship four years, and it's very clear there's two people in that pickup truck. <laughs> and uh, they don't necessarily even have a desire. Why? Because the, desire, the sexual desire declines in women, desire for tenderness declines in men, and of course the man who's still wanting sex thinks that he would be happier if she would allow it, and she doesn't notice the tenderness anymore, and it is not producing for her what it used to. And then this was done in monkeys. Male monkeys paired repeatedly the same females, and these females were always in the mood, thanks to daily hormone injections. You'd think it was monkey heaven, because they could have sex all the time. But the males copulated less and less frequently with declining enthusiasm over a what period of time? three-and-a-half-year period. Not only that, when novel females showed up, these slackers hurriedly rolled into action with their original zest. By the way, this is why Victoria's Secret is a big business, because it actually fools the individual into thinking a novel opportunity has arrived with a novel attire and those sorts of things. And uh, people will, will often tell me, you know, it didn't matter what she was wearing the first four years of our marriage, but now she better have the right outfit on. That's a problem, that they have done the things to get rid of PEA. So these are secular researchers. The truth is that if your spouse isn't having orgasmic sex with you as often as you'd like, he or she could be what? Preserving your union by preventing you from satiating yourself sexually too frequently. Couples engaging in too frequent orgasmic sex eventually drift into engaging in conscious affection only when pursuing orgasm. That's a sign that the line has been crossed when that happens. And, you know, I've been to marriage seminars where people, the marriage seminar people will say, you know what, you need to kiss your wife, you know, 70 times a day. You need to do this. It's all these rules that you have to do in regards to romance. You don't have to have any of these rules if you're doing sex the right way. It's automatically going to happen. You're going to be kissing your wife far more than 70 times a day, not because it's a rule, but because you want to. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to be 
putting your arm around you. You're, you're going to have to be careful not to have the public display of affection. You know, the, the problem with PDA is that you can incite jealousy. So, you know, we have to be careful. I know Eric and, and myself were careful about that. But at times we think no one is looking. It was right in the middle of depression and anxiety recovery where no one was around. And we were meeting each other on campus. And we did a very um, loving and romantic hug and kiss. And then one of the depression guests was exercising and said, whoa. <laughs> like, but, you know, this is, uh, this is the beautiful thing. We've been married for 35 years. And as a result of our research, we've, you know, I've asked Erica the, uh, when I was learning about these different stages a few a number of years ago when we were doing depression and anxiety recovery, I said, what stage are we in? And she says, why aren't we out of stage one? <laughs> we're still in stage one. Um, so uh, this sexual satiation, when you're completely sexually satiated, it actually drives mates apart. And you're more likely to succumb. We've had so many people come to our program said, I gave my husband sex whenever he wanted, however he wanted it. I wanted to make sure he was satisfied, and I still lost him. You actually lost him as a result, often, of doing that to him. So we... Um, uh, this is the University of San Diego... Empiric research demonstrates that different sexual behaviors differ in many physiological and psychological domains. These differences are remarkably consistent in revealing an association be between specifically penile vaginal intercourse and indices of better physiological and psychological function. Other sexual behaviors, notice they list them, masturbation, partner masturbation, oral sex, anal sex, any other sex that excludes penile vaginal intercourse are negatively related to indices of physiological and psychological function. Dopaminergic pathways underlie process of romantic attraction. The studies demonstrate that prolactin surges that modulate dopaminergic function differ greatly between sexual behaviors. Such surges are strongly associated with women's sexual satisfaction resulting from penile vaginal intercourse and not other PVI ways of experiencing orgasm. So in other words, if you're doing those other ways of orgasm, your dopamine set point is going down. These three adverse brain changes are coming your way. But PVI is associated with better health. Greater heart rate variability associated with orgasms through penile vaginal intercourse. Uh, blood pressure response to stress is also better. Uh, and once again, specifically PVI associated with better relationship satisfaction. No other forms of sex in relationships increase relationship satisfaction. Other forms do not enhance relationship satisfaction. In fact, data shows they worsen relationship satisfaction over time. So if you are complete and comprehensively committed to each other, PVI produces a nice oxytocin boost in both males and females. The bonding is amazing. The marital satisfaction is likely to be 10 out of 10 for Years and years, prolactin four times higher, which modulates the dopamine set point and prevents it from going down. Dopamine levels are euphoric throughout every aspect of marital intimacy without lowering the dopamine set point and dopamine receptors. 
So in other words, that euphoria stage doesn't go down over time. It continues to go above this chart. <laughs> and then studies on sex frequency. Well, let me just mention this. It's true that, is it true that engaging in more frequent sex is associated with greater well-being? Media emphasizes and research supposedly supports the claim the more sex you have, the happier it will be, as long as it's consensual. But only in committed marriage relationships does sex have any enhancing effects. And this was 30,645 individuals. This is not some small study. We demonstrate the association between sexual frequency and well-being is best described by a curvilinear as opposed to a linear association with, where sex is no longer associated with well-being at a frequency of more than what? Once a week. By the way, there's also a problem with not having enough. A lot of marriages are not having any intimacy at most of the time, that's because they had too much and the wrong type of sex. And then it goes into a sexless marriage. Uh, and, of course, usually one of those partners is actually getting it from somewhere, somehow. Pornography, those type of things. Uh, because the other partner doesn't want to necessarily do all of this. And that is a problem as well. Uh, the one person who's masturbating probably needs to go through a 90-day sex reboot, or if they're both doing that, which is often the case. In sexless marriages, I've seen so many sexless marriages in our, in our program, and usually both of them are actually masturbating, but not coming together. Unwed did this study from Cambridge on 86 societies and showed increased sexual constraints, either pre- or post-nuptial, always led to increased flourishing of a culture. Conversely, increased sexual freedom in a culture always led to collapse of a culture. How many generations later? We're seeing the collapse of America simply as a result of what's predicted based on our sexual freedom aspects. The most powerful combination of a highest flourishing of a culture and family was prenuptial chastity, that means no sex before marriage, coupled with absolute monogamy, meaning that you are only committed to each other. These cultures were rational, and if they retained this combination for at least three generations, they exceeded all other cultures in every area, including literature, art, science, furniture, architecture, engineering, and agriculture. Only three out of 86 cultures studied ever attained to this level, however. And one of them was the United States of America because we were founded on freedom of speech and freedom of religion, but not sexual freedom. Every country, every state had laws against adultery. And they had laws against sodomy. The laws against sodomy were to protect the women in those relationships. And those laws actually resulted in a great flourishing of of what happened here in America uh, after those three generations. The French Revolution was not based on religious freedom. It was not based on freedom of speech. It was based on sexual freedom. And France went into the reign of terror. It was a terrible ordeal. Mental institutions filled up to capacity. There's a reason why God said, thou shalt not commit adultery. Total sexual freedom was embraced by a culture. That culture collapsed within three generations to the lowest state of flourishing, which Unwin described as inert and a dead level of conception. This is characterized by people who have little interest in much else other than their what? 
their own wants and needs. They become very self-centered. Their families are very discordant. They're being easily distracted because of their sexual freedom away from their kids. And those kids are suffered from neglect. And at this level, the culture is usually conquered or taken over by another culture with greater social energy. But as I mentioned, we are not doomed by this. This is just a partial list of thousands of people who've gone through the 90-day reboot. After 90 days, increased happiness, pride, joy, confidence, calmness. Happiness is found in simpler things. A walk, a nice meal, music. They begin to experience more emotions. They're feeling less numb to life. They begin to love and accept themselves. They're able to take a stand for what's right without backing down and state their opinion. And hope comes up. That's because the frontal lobe is getting better. Increased hope, better future, always seems obtainable no matter how difficult things get. Men have talked about it also in the thousands. Less social anxiety, fear of judgment. They're able to initiate conversation more often. Increased conversational skills. Vocabulary comes much better to them. Words come much more frequently. Feel more in touch with other people. Uh, And real women start looking more attractive. More attention to interaction and physical touch than just the visual. And if they're single, their motivation to meet and talk to real women goes up considerably. Uh, This is one of the reasons why marriage is at an all-time low as well, because people are actually masturbating in front of screens and not having the motivation to actually meet other people. So, uh, And then, of course, once they get into sex with um, committed relationships, the sex is far better than they ever had it before. Increased determination, energy, productivity, reading, working out, Sleep quality goes up, better posture and appearance, increased athletic performance in, uh, with stamina and physical strength. Often the physical feats are those, and this is well known in the sports world, who are abstinent. Even if they're married, they'll try to be abstinent for months before their physical um, coming together in regards to a competition because they'll be far much better with their testosterone levels to be successful. Deeper, more manly voice, mentally Increased clarity of fog, loss of brain fog, increased concentration, better decision-making, improved memory. These are quotes who have gone through the 90-day reboot. I love interacting with real people now. My mental focus is incredible. We had this individual tell us this after his 90 days, allowing me to start overachieving at work, and it's being noticed. So his workmates were saying, what has happened to you? You are getting so much done. You're running circles around us. Your productivity is amazing. And the poor guy couldn't say, I quit masturbating 90 days ago. (laughs) My confidence seems indestructible, composure unflappable. This will be my regular wardrobe replacing metal T-shirts with workout shorts. It's been over a decade since I started looking at watching porn. And this feels how I truly am now after getting away from that. Creativity now flows out of me. It feels like my motivation to do things is more grounded in bigger picture type of thinking rather than going after what feels good in the moment. In other words, the brain is balancing out. I want to go out. I want to socialize. I want to touch. I want to work out. I want to live. I don't want to have sex with every girl now. I want a connection. And I have no interest in what? Non-productive things. A lot of these people that are gamers and things like that, they take their breaks with porn and masturbation and they can't seem to get away from their gaming, but if they go through the 90-day sex fast, they don't even want to do that anymore. 
It's like, this is just totally non-productive. I can't believe that I used to do this. No longer an angry person. No longer looking at women and wondering what they look like naked and what they're like in bed because they're not having those porno images coming at them anymore. Freedom, I got my life back. I'm no longer a slave to my addiction. Whatever anyone says about placebo, this one thing for me is completely measurable. Tangible benefit from no masturbation. No one can tell me the effects are placebo. I can easily take on complex mathematical or engineering problems. Little bit of advice during the 90 days. The best thing I did for myself was to be what? Busy. If you're not busy and you're in a room with a computer with no, you know, no limitations on that, you're going to have a high tendency to relapse. So you want to stay busy. This gentleman said, your prefrontal cortex is a sensible, logical you telling you to improve your life and move on. Your limbic system is the imbalanced, undisciplined you that wants the easy option. PMO, what does that stand for? Pornography, masturbation, orgasm, tips the balance in favor of what? The limbic system winning every time. And then females. This is also very addictive to females. I have to say that sex addiction withdrawal is much more difficult than the cannabis, cigarette, alcohol, amphetamine, and ecstasy withdrawals I've gone through. Been a heavy consumer and addict of all these substances. Stopped them all at the same time 4.5 years ago. But what was tougher? Undergoing this 90-day reboot. Clitoral sensitivity will go up, weight loss, mood, all sorts of things in women as well. We won't go through because I'm getting a sign in the back of our need to um, shut down studies at Carnegie University. But, you know, despite the fact that science is now pretty clear on this, in fact, if you doubt what I've said, there's at least 30 studies documenting what I've said and everything related to, to this. So this is not just obscure stuff. You can find it. But we should have known this by listening to the prophet. Listen to this. Sexual excess will effectively destroy a love for what? Devotional exercises. Will take from the brain the substance needed to nourish the system and will most effectively exhaust the what? No woman should aid her husband in this work of self-destruction. She will not do it if she is enlightened and has a what? A true love for him. The more the animal passions are indulged, the stronger do they become, and the more violent will be their clamors for indulgence. Let God-fearing men and women awake to their duty. Many professed Christians are suffering with paralysis of nerve and brain because of their intemperance in this direction alone. No man can truly love his wife when she will patiently submit to become a slave and minister to his depraved passions. In her passive submission, she loses the value she once possessed in his eyes. He sees her dragged down from everything elevated to a low level, and soon he suspects that she will as tamely submit to be degraded by another as by himself. He doubts her constancy and purity, tires of her, and seeks what? New objects to arouse and intensify his passions. Exactly what the science tells us. These men are unacquainted with the elevating and ennobling principles of truth and sanctified love. The wife also becomes jealous of the husband and suspects that if opportunity should offer, he would just as readily pay his addresses to another as to her. She sees that he is not controlled by conscience or the fear of God. All these sanctified barriers are broken down by lustful passions. All that is godlike in the husband is made the servant of low, brutish lust. Adventist Home, you can read it. It's in there, pages 124 through 126, but it says what the science gives. 
Now in our depression and anxiety recovery program, I don't go into the inspired statements uh, <clears throat> this way, but I go into the science, and the science is simple enough that people will make decided changes in this regard. And what a difference will transpire. Any questions about this topic or uh, another topic? Yes. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, maybe I need to turn it over to you before I go into questions. No, we do, we do have some questions right here. Oh, okay. All right. Let me ask about questions on this topic first because they probably don't have that topic in there to make sure we clarify. Sometimes people are confused about some things. Yes. Yeah, you, you don't want to be doing it more frequently than every four days, but there's an advantage of going seven in, in testosterone and relationships. One week. Yep, yep, one week, yes. Okay, yes, what about older couples that have lost their libido? So I think it would be important to have both couples look at a presentation like this because one of them maybe surreptitiously is actually you know, possibly doing it on the side. So you wanna make sure there's gonna be a 90-day sex fast for both. And then if the libido hasn't come back, it's amazing what happens during this time. You know, we, we have a lot, of course, a lot of people that have gone through this and they'll talk about how they're pursuing their wife around the, the house, you know. Uh, after three or four weeks and, and how their love and compassion for her has increased, and, but they're not doing the sex part, but they're doing all of the, the, the other parts in pursuing and dating and things. And then after the 90-day reboot, often it does come back. But if it doesn't even after then, then we might have to start looking at hormones. We might have to start looking at other ways of being able to, um, to possibly help um, the situation uh, to the extent we can. Yes? Are you saying um, that age does not affect your libido? Uh, age can affect it if hormones are starting to go down, but it doesn't have to be that way. And so, um, you know, obviously post-menstruation, there can be hormones going down because the ovaries are shutting down. Men, you know, they call male menopause, Male menopause normally happens because the male is overdoing it, you know. And so uh, if the male isn't overdoing it, normally those testosterone levels can be high, even at 60, 70, and those sorts of things. And the androgen receptors can be pretty high as well. Now, there's other lifestyle factors that can help with testosterone and with hormones in women post-ovulation, and one of those has to do with luteinizing hormone. Luteinizing hormone it spikes, which is what tells your ovaries to produce estrogen and your testicles to produce testosterone. It, it spikes in regards to light therapy. So just an hour of light therapy in the morning after a month can start increasing those hormonal levels significantly. So there's other lifestyle factors that can play a role in this. Yes? So in our society today, we see so many different... Oh, thank you. In our society today, we see so many different types of portrayals of what good sex should look like, what good foreplay should look like. And I appreciate the balance that you brought with bringing in the spirit of prophecy and, and those types of principles. But what are you seeing from you know, perhaps a, the studies that you've seen as to 
what would constitute like a healthy sex life? You were talking about frequency, but what about some of those other things that, you know, perhaps the media blasts us with and says, this is good foreplay, this is good sex. How would you... Yeah, I wouldn't look at the media for any um, type of, um, of positive help in this regard. The media is totally absent. On the science here, the science is there. It's published in the sexual journals. They will never broadcast what I've just stated. They are not going to tell you that PVI sex is the only good form of sex because LGBTQ just goes out the window and they can't blame their poor mental health on the perception of others, <laughs> uh, which is what they're doing. They're wanting to blame their increased anxiety, depression, and all the things they have because you guys are just viewing us in some sort of way. No, it's a direct result <laughs> of their activity. It's going to happen, <laughs> and that's what the sex research shows. So, uh, so don't listen to the media in regards to anything. They're trying to create a narrative to expand sexual freedom because that's what they think is the new Protestant Reformation. <laughs> and they're very short-sighted on this. Uh, and, and they're actually unwittingly, in many cases, actually causing destruction of families and destruction of the whole aspect of things. But having said that, I will state this, that when you are doing it God's way, there's still significant variety. I mean, there's over a hundred ways in which you can do PVI. <laughs> it's not just one way. And, and there's still lots of, of in, in enjoyment in every aspect. And this type of stuff will occur spontaneously. You don't have to look at the media to know how to do it. <laughs> God gave us a frontal lobe <laughs> to be able to, to be creative ourselves uh, in regards to these things. And, uh, and you don't want to be um, sucked in in regards to having to, you know, one of the big things that sex therapists do is say, well, you need to watch, watch these, these sexual videos. No, <laughs> that is not what you want to do. You want to actually go through a reboot and then let God with your frontal lobe and with the love that you have for your spouse uh, be able to do this whole thing. So it's not, like I say, it's no longer the pursuit of orgasm. Every aspect of the intimate relationship produces this dopamine high that is incredible. And it stays up for a long period of time. By the way, if you're doing, I should mention, it doesn't bounce back down again, the dopamine, when you're doing it right. That dopamine level will stay up for about four days. So, I mean, you can have some really terrible days at day three and day four, and you're not bothered at all <laughs> about it. And uh, this is the type of life God, want us to, God wanted us to be able to have. All right, I know I have some other uh, ones, so we probably should take just one or two questions about this so we have time for these. All right. Uh, transitioning. Uh, does vitamin D3K, is that magnesium? I'm a little... Uh, it's, yeah, just is K magnesium? My chemistry is a little fuzzy. Uh, no, K, uh, well, there might be vitamin K. There is vitamin K. Okay. All right, well, how about does vitamin D3 and magnesium help with high blood pressure? What yes. Amounts? So vitamin D3 is going to help your calcium absorption and your magnesium absorption. And both of those have been shown to help to lower high blood pressure. Uh, and the K they might have been talking about was potassium. Potassium also has a blood pressure lowering effect. And so, um, yes, to uh, answer all of um, the, the, the variables that they mentioned, everything that they mentioned can help bring down hypertension. 
How about this? This is kind of maybe piggybacking on a little bit of what you talked about. How do you help a young man with gender dysphoria and is depressed as a result? He hates the very skin he was born in. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about... Uh, this is where the, the transgender arguments come. They like to center in on the one in 400 cases and, and try to apply that to the 399 other cases. So let me tell you about a true gender dysphoria. We had a, a um, person who was raised a female come to our program. She wasn't developing breasts. She wasn't having periods. She was growing a beard. She was raised in actually a girl's dorm at an academy. And she had what she thought were same-sex attractions because she'd be very attracted to the girls who were undressing in front of her and had a hard time not being able to do all of this sort of thing. And the mother said, wait, you'll get periods. You'll, you're just developing later and whatever. But finally, I mean, she saw some doctors. Doctors said, just wait, you know. Finally saw a reproductive endocrinologist at age 21 and found out that this girl that was raised a girl was actually a boy. Had testicles. Every chromosome in her body was XY. And the testicles had not descended and so, and it, it looked like a vagina as a result. There wasn't the penile aspect. So there was surgery involved, and the testicles were taken down. But when she actually, on the way home, she says, she calls her mom and says, Mom, I'm not a woman. What do you mean? She says, I've got testicles. I'm a man. Do you know what mom said? Have them take them out. She had raised this girl, and she had wanted a girl. There were other brothers in the home, and this was her girl, and it wasn't a girl. And he says, Mom, I'm not taking out those testicles. I'm a man. <laughs> so that was the appropriate form of surgery. That was the appropriate aspect of things. And he ended up marrying a woman. <laughs> and... Uh, with the issues that he had in being raised, he ended up coming to our program as well. We've actually had, her, had him on our EQ Summit to talk about what really transgenderism is about in regards to transitioning on the real way. But what is best is for us to align ourselves with our biological sex. And so these people, you know, we had one in our own program. I could go into this in a little more detail, but transgenderism, in males, let's talk about the male aspect of things. There's two aspects, those who have same-sex attractions. And by the way, you are not born with same-sex attractions. It's environmentally induced, very clear. By the way, even CNN, the most liberal progressive that's pushing this sexual freedom agenda came out with a year ago where they looked at a million gay people trying to find a gene that was associated with it. They can't find it, no way, no how. And they finally put out no gay gene. By the way, after that study was done, it took them three years to release it because they were fearful that people would say you're not born this way. <laughs> because that was their initial argument to get people to buy into it. And so finally they, they said, well, we've got to release the science. But then they released it in such a way that, that still, um, you know, you can see the other verbiage. But the big title is no gay gene. So same-sex attractions are, are environmental, and it can be due to a number of different factors that we won't go into. 
but half of the transgender men have same-sex attraction, so they want to change to females. But the other half are very opposite sex attraction, no same-sex attractions at all, but they're turned on by female things because they are males. So in other words, they get erotic um, by seeing someone in a nice, cute dress. And so they want to put the dress on themselves, so that way they don't have to have someone else stimulate them. Uh, they can be stimulating themselves. And uh, this is how it works. We had an individual in our program this last time about it. And, of course, what we had to do was tell, tell, you know, show him Michelle Cretella's video that actually the best form of therapy is where we align ourselves with our biological sex. And at first it made him angry. He didn't understand that. We had to answer those questions and do it. But what a difference it's made in this young gentleman's life to realize I'm a male and it's okay I'm attracted by female things. <laughs> but it's better for me to stay a male uh, than it is to go the other way. Uh, and so, uh, and how do we do this? It's CBT. Okay, you say you're female. Why do you think you're female? And so they list out the things. Is there anything that's male about you? Oh yeah, there are things. And when they compile that list objectively, they'll see a list this long that they're male, and they'll see a list this long that's female. But if you get on the internet and you look at a male having those th few things, the internet will convince you that you're actually a female and not a male, despite all the evidence that you're a male. <laughs> and, uh, and so the media takes advantage of these uh, individuals and gives them all sorts of falsehood. And so the same as we had in the program before, we had a person who was a female who thought she was a male, and what a difference it made in their CBT session. Okay, so you're, you're a male because you like sports, you're a male because you like to do some male things, you know, she was somewhat of a tomboy, and she got on the internet and was convinced she was a male, but are there any things that make you female? Well, yes, I have periods, you know, I have female genitalia, I have breasts, is there anything else? Oh yeah, you know, I, I love babies, I like to dress them, I like to care for them, I like to do all this. In her list, when she compiled it, she was a female this long, so-called male this long, which doesn't make you male at all, and the CBT therapist says, so where's the weight of the evidence? And she looked at it and she goes, wow, I am a female. <laughs> I'm a female. And she actually started smiling. It made her feel good that she was actually a female and didn't have to go through all of this stuff. And so once again, we don't affirm them in their irrational thinking. We actually have to get to the core beliefs that make them think in an irrational way to turn it around. Amen. All right, getting back to self-control. What about a person with low self-control that wants to control others? <laughs> well, as I mentioned yesterday, if you have low self-control, you're more likely to want to control others. If you, uh, if you heard, those with comprehensive self-control are more accommodating of others. And so it gets to the same solution, uh, uh, ultimately. Yes. I have uh, this negative thought that I don't belong. I know I belong to God, and, I'm in, and I am in a constant battle with this thought, but I'd like to know if there's some practical tools that, I can, that can help me to overcome that. Okay. So we'd want to go deeper as to why they feel they don't belong. Um, often, if, you know, I'm, I'm assuming 
Um, this came from someone who's part of a religious institution. Um, and often, sometimes, people feel they don't belong in the religious institution because they have carnal desires that are going against the principles of the religious institution. Here's the thing, all of us have carnal desires. <laughs> Our carnal desires might be different, but no matter who the human being is, if we let the limbic system reign, we're going to feel like we don't belong in a spiritual institution. And uh, that's one of the dangers um, that we're told that the, um, uh, there's an answering chord. Some of you might be able to help us, uh, me with this quote, but Ellen White talks about temptations from without cause an answering chord from within and the feet go imperceptibly towards evil. And so we need to recognize this is something that we have to uh, warn against. God can actually, eventually, as we follow his will, actually bring more and more of our desires and even our limbic system in accordance with his will. And so just because you feel like you don't belong doesn't mean you don't belong. The church is actually a hospital for sick people. <laughs> and, uh, and that's the purpose of uh, religious institutions. I think we got time for what, maybe one more? Um, I know that narcissism is a mental illness. A dear family member has an extreme uh, case of this. On a scientific level, there's a whole series of questions here, so maybe we'll begin with this. On a scientific level, what can be done to help uh, this person? Uh, we'll continue to read. Um, almost um, most people have told me is to pray. Uh, what measures can be taken to help the brain? Can a narcissist ever be quote-unquote normal again? If so, how long does this process take? What if they don't recognize their need at the moment? Will family relationships with people like these always be difficult? Please give practical tips, if possible. Um, do you all deal with such cases as these? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Narcissism is dramatically on the increase. And, uh, you know, if you, if you follow uh, where the media wants you to go as a young person, you're going to end up as a narcissist. Uh, and uh, this whole aspect of pride and building up your, yourself uh, from the inside uh, is something that our, our country has really resonated with. Here is the issue that is erroneous in psychology today. Often they will teach you that personality disorders cannot be changed. And that is not true. Narcissistic personality disorder can be changed. Borderline personality disorder can be changed. When, or histrionic, you name the personality disorder, it is possible for any brain to change because we have neuroplasticity. This whole idea that if you're a homosexual, you can never change. That goes against the very principles of neuroplasticity. You can actually learn how to drive a bike the opposite way. That's been done, where if you turn this way, it actually goes the other way. At first, it's very hard, but you can get so good at that that you will actually turn precisely the wrong way to go the right way. <laughs> and if you are given a bike with the right way, you can't drive that anymore, and you used to be able to. And so this is how much the brain can change in, in so many different regards. And where we would start with narcissism, uh, of course, the lifestyle behavior parts are very important. 
But there's a book that's been very helpful called What Your Counselor Never Told You, The Seven Sins That Lead to Mental Illness. And the first sin that's mentioned is the sin of pride. And then there's a little test to see whether you might have it. Most narcissists would never call themselves narcissists until they look at that chapter and they start taking the test. And they realize, bing, boy, I'm hitting on all of these. And the solution to that is actually a spiritual solution as well as a cognitive solution. So we use CBT and the spiritual solutions combined to uh, help that person recognize that they're not any more worthwhile than anybody else (laughs) and uh, that they're not any better than anybody else. They might have better talents in certain areas, but that doesn't uh, make them of more value. And that spirit of humility can actually soften that whole aspect and really um, help relationships. Well, Dr. Nedley, we thank you so much for giving of your time uh, to be here with us. It's definitely been rich, definitely been a blessing. Could you, could you have a closing word of prayer, and then I'll have some closing remarks afterwards. Sure. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the interest that you have in our health of body, mind, and soul. We thank you that even in the minutia of life, you have given us inspired counsel through your Uh, the pen of inspiration, as well as through science, to show us how we can live a life that is more abundant than you, and how we can live the psychological good life despite the circumstances around us. We pray that we might be more willing to trust in you and trust in the counsel and commands that you have given us, recognizing that these are for our own good. In Jesus' name we pray. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.